the best things in life for free. If you subscribe to The Spectator, you'll get a whole month for free. And after that, you'll only pay a pound for full access to our website and to our app. And if you want to pay two pounds, you'll get our magazine too. To claim this offer, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash free. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week, we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask our writers to read them aloud. Coming up on the podcast this week, Lionel Shriver argues that we should rise up in our road rage. Ian Williams discusses the crackdown on China's stand-up comics. And Matthew Dennison explains why we shouldn't cancel Beatrix Potter. First up, Lionel Shriver. Whether you're more afraid of the forces of order or the forces of chaos is generally a matter of disposition. A natural anti-authoritarian who despises being told what to do, especially when told to do something stupid. I'm more horrified by excesses of order. Granted, my greater fear of the state may simply betray that I've largely lived in an orderly Western world, and after a few dog-eat-dog nights of mayhem and carnage, I might change my tune. Nevertheless, during the COVID lockdowns, for example, I was less distressed by the odd neighbor who dared to invite a friend to tea than by most Britons' blind bovine compliance with an economically self-destructive, socially disastrous, politically despotic, and medically idiotic regime. So it's a relief to see the British display some spunk. Apologies to my betters at The Spectator for celebrating law-breaking and the destruction of public property. But the systematic vandalism of traffic cameras in Greater London warms the cockles of my heart and puts a smile on my face. Due to go live in August, the vast expansion of Mayor Sadiq Khan's ultra-low emission zone will hit about 700,000 motorists in London with a stonking £12.50 charge per day because their older cars don't meet admissions requirements, dependent on historically dubious testing. In the surrounding 10 counties, the owners of 1.6 million cars whose bumpers nose into the newly sprawling ULES will also be fined the equivalent of 10 liters of milk or 16 loaves of bread. According to Nick Arlett, the retired builder with mobility problems behind Facebook's 30,000-member Action Against ULES group, the expansion would leave him housebound. In theory, Khan's overreach is intended to improve the quality of the city's air, which has never been cleaner. Yet the Jacobs Report, which Khan himself commissioned, found the carbon emissions reduction of ULES Plus would be negligible, while disproportionately punishing low earners. Post-COVID, Transport for London has run in the red. Like so many top-down green tyrannies, this one is a fig leaf for picking the public pocket. The folks behind the stealing and vandalizing of at least 200 enforcement cameras are not your standard rabble-rousers, older, often of modest means, 
and formerly apolitical. A semi-retired HGV driver organizing UK Unites, which claims to represent 2.5 million people opposing this and other anti-car initiatives. Phil Elliott believes that even the police are on the protesters' side. They are us. They are driving old cars and they hate Sadiq Khan. Elliott believes that U.S. expansion may be the straw-on-camel event that, quote, makes the country go bang. After all that spineless submission to lunacy and authoritarianism during COVID, I'll believe this country has the capacity to go bang when I see it. Yet a flood of heavy-handed control freakery in the name of greeniness and alternative transportation, the 15-minute cities that would imprison urbanites in their own tiny neighborhoods, the crippling 20 miles per hour restrictions across swaths of residential roadways, seems to be triggering a gathering popular rage even among the commonly placid British people. I'm reminded of that prophecy from the Japanese admiral who planned the attack on Pearl Harbor. I fear all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. For two years now, popular resistance to local councils' clumsy, low-traffic neighborhoods has gone well beyond passive indignation. All over the UK, the obstructive posts, bollards, and planters that impede motorized vehicles have been run over, spray-painted, ripped out, sawn off, and set on fire. Honestly, I think all this spontaneous Civil disobedience is splendid. I should declare myself. I live in London. I don't drive. I cycle everywhere. ULA's expansion won't directly cost me. This infernal constellation of interfering initiatives, from the very pangendrums charged with facilitating our getting from A to B rather than making it impossible is supposedly in my interest. But I'm no sanctimonious cyclist. When I encounter a giant flower pot plunked in a two-way street, deliberately positioned so that I personally can scoot beside it, while cars heading both directions are squeezed into a single lane, I'm embarrassed. I do not require giant flower pots to go about my business, and it infuriates me that these moronic policies are instituted in my name. Furthermore, I sometimes require tradesmen who travel with their tools and vans. I order immoderately from Amazon. The groceries I cram in my panniers at Till's have all been delivered to the supermarket in petrol or diesel-fueled lorries. I rely on motor vehicles, too. We've entered an era of unaccountable bureaucratic imposition that's only going to get worse, especially as fines for violating all these new rules are nice little earners for municipalities. In pursuit of net zero, recycling, pedestrian safety, or pollution control, fees and restrictions are raining upon our heads after no public consultation. 
bans on the sale of new petrol cars by 2030 and gas boilers in new homes by 2025 that no one voted for are just the beginning of a self-righteous totalitarian tinkering with our daily lives that makes a mockery of the notion that democracies are governed by consent. Yet in the big picture, governments do need our consent. They can't easily enforce daft policies without us commoners' cooperation. I'd not advocate rebellion via the kind of rioting seen in Eli last week. But earlier this year, farmers opposing the state's massive co-optation of their land to have nitrogen runoff brought the Netherlands to a standstill with tractors. Conjured solely from this protest, a whole new political party is now the largest in the Dutch Parliament's upper house. Authorities can't do whatever they like to us unless we let them. In The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy discovered that she'd all along had the power to go home because she was wearing the ruby slippers. Had throngs of Brits come out on the street and said, no, sorry, we're not having it, COVID lockdowns would have been abandoned. Slow to anger, yes, but the British public should never forget that they're wearing Dorothy's shoes. That was Lionel Shriver. Next, Ian Williams. The Chinese Communist Party is probably the funniest thing that exists, the dissident Ai Weiwei once told me, but it doesn't have a sense of humour. The brave band of comics in China's fledgling stand-up comedy scene are discovering that poking fun at the grim-faced old men who run the country with an ever tighter grip is a dangerous pursuit. Last month at a comedy club in Beijing's Dongcheng district, 31-year-old Li Haoshe mocked a military slogan coined by President Xi Jinping. Li said that forge exemplary conduct, fight to win, reminded him of his two dogs chasing a squirrel. A clip of the show spread rapidly online. The Beijing Municipal Culture and Tourism Bureau said it would not allow Li to wantonly slander the glorious image of the People's Liberation Army, and that his joke had a vile societal impact. Performances by Li, who goes by the stage name House, have been suspended indefinitely. His earnings have been seized, and he is being investigated using a law that makes it illegal to insult the PLA. State media then reported that a 34-year-old woman had been detained for posting online support for Lee, while a popular British-Malaysian stand-up comedian, who goes by the name Uncle Roger, had his Chinese social media accounts suspended for violation of relevant law and regulations. This has been followed in the past few days with the sudden shutdown of a swathe of live shows and cultural events. These include a What the Folkstival concert near Beijing's airport, where ten live acts were scheduled to play acoustic music to soothe your soul, a performance by a Japanese Buddhist-influenced choral group called Kisachiao, and a ladies who tech convention. 
In each case, the perplexed organisers cited a variation of unforeseen circumstances or force majeure to indicate circumstances beyond their control, which is often used in China as a euphemism for higher powers. Privately, performers linked the cancellations to Li Haoshi's joke. In many ways, it is surprising that China has a stand-up comedy scene at all. The CCP is not known for its tolerance of dissent. During my time as a correspondent in Beijing, I met a young comic who had recently returned from studying in New York and was determined to bring a brand of irreverent humour to China. He quickly became disillusioned. Nevertheless, in the past few years, comics have managed to carve out a lively stand-up scene. It originated in small cafes and bars in Shanghai and Beijing, but has spread. By one estimate, the number of comedy clubs in the country has risen from single figures in 2018 to nearly 180 in 2021, with around 1,500 full-time comedians. On paper, at least, their material is tightly constrained. Clubs and performers are required to obtain licences and their scripts must be approved in advance. Rules require them to promote social morality and to love the motherland and support the CCP's line and policies. That said, comics frequently veer from the script and have been adept at using irony, metaphor and surreal humour to push the boundaries. Comedians have had run-ins with the authorities before. Several have been criticised for inappropriate or vulgar jokes. A female stand-up comedian called Yang Li, also known as the Punchline Queen, faced sanctions after being accused of insulting men during one of her shows. Li Haoshi was on particularly dangerous ground because he was ridiculing Xi's own words, and the criminalisation of his joke is the most serious setback yet for China's stand-up scene. It might even prove terminal. Xiao Guo Cultural Media, the company that turned Li into a star and pioneered stand-up comedy in China, has also been targeted with heavy fines and a suspension of all performances. It produced a successful show called Rock and Roast, a stand-up comedy competition which typically poked fun at daily life in China. The show attracted a huge following, particularly among the young, during the pandemic when lockdowns confined many people to their homes. Xi Jinping is exceptionally humourless, even by the standards of recent Chinese leaders. Like Mao Zedong before him, he believes that art is an instrument of politics and that entertainers should be role models, spouting bland CCP homilies. Or, as the Beijing authorities put it when they banned Li Haoshi, artists and writers should have correct creative thinking and provide healthy spiritual nourishment for the people. Lee was also targeted by an army of online nationalists who were given considerable leeway in China's otherwise tightly controlled internet. The crackdown on humour should also be seen in the light of Xi's broader and intensifying indoctrination drive launched in the wake of his zero-Covid debacle. This has included mass study campaigns to spread Xi Jinping's thought throughout society, the CCP must unify its thinking, unify its will and unify its actions, according to Xi.
Lee is learning the hard way that the CCP won't stand for humour and ridicule. Perhaps he became overconfident, and perhaps, too, he should have seen it coming. His career is almost certainly over, and he could face years in prison. I will take responsibility for this, stop all performances, and deeply reflect, he said on his social media account, which in itself is horrible jargon, and may also be a joke. We'll never know, but the party is taking no chances. That was the last thing he posted before he was banned from any further online comment. That was Ian Williams. And finally, Matthew Dennison. Don't Cancel Beatrix Potter by Matthew Dennison. Read by the author. I spoke too soon. Beatrix Potter, I suggested in an afterword to my 2016 biography of the author and illustrator, had escaped the distortions of sexual and racial revisionism that now blight so many eminent and long-dead British writers. But no longer. Last week, a specialist in post-colonial literature at a northern university accused Potter of failing to acknowledge her indebtedness to an oral storytelling tradition of enslaved Africans working on American plantations. Welcome, please, a new Potter for the 21st century. Exploitative, colonialist, dishonest. Potter's concealment, claims Dr Emily Zobel Marshall, feeds into a damaging and recurring appropriation of black cultural forms that continues today. Blimey! Zobel Marshall's hypothesis rests on a comparative reading of several of Potter's children's books and the Br'er Rabbit stories published by American folklorist Joel Chandler Harris, beginning in the 1880s, which celebrate the cunning of a trickster rabbit whose misdemeanours like those of Peter Rabbit include stealing food. Chandler Harris had first-hand experience of the slave community's storytelling tradition from his time on a Georgia plantation in the early 1860s. Potter, by contrast, was brought up in cloistered mid-Victorian respectability in South Kensington. Dominating her childhood were the social anxieties of her fretful mother and gadfly father, both of them inheritors of very recent fortunes based on their own father's graft, canniness and, oh joy, cotton, some of it American in origin. For Zobel Marshall, it's too good a coincidence to ignore. Correctly, she points out that Chandler Harris's stories had not been published when Potter, born in 1866, was a child. She concludes that Potter's knowledge of the Br'er Rabbit tales was a result of her family roots in the cotton industry. So easily, in 2023, is a reputation scuppered. At this point, I admit my Potter partisanship. In writing about Potter, I shared my life with her for several years, not a minute of which dampened my admiration for her. Like anyone else who has examined Potter's letters, journal, and a clutch of illustrations she made in the 1890s for Br'er Rabbit stories, I'm well aware that she not only read, but was influenced by Chandler Harris's retellings of these plantation tales that also, in some instances, include borrowings from Native American folk tales. She explained to her publisher in 1911 her view that the principal defect of her The Tale of Mr Todd was its imitation of Chandler Harris's Uncle Remus, 
comforting herself that since British children would be unable to get to grips with the Negro vernacular of the Uncle Remus Br'er Rabbit stories, there could be no question of direct plagiarism. For Zobel Marshall, Potter's crime is her failure to make a similar statement of indebtedness on Mr Todd's dust jacket and those of the tales of Peter Rabbit, Benjamin Bunny, et al. No matter that Potter similarly failed to publicise the origins of the tale of Johnny Town Mouse in Aesop's fable of the Town Mouse and the Country Mouse, a story that also emerged from an oral storytelling tradition in a slave-owning culture. Indeed, Aesop himself is described by both Herodotus and Aristotle as a slave in Samos. Greek slavery is not Zobel Marshall's concern. If Zobel Marshall's is a reasoned protest, it is also on several levels unreasonable. Potter was intensely interested in folk tales, nursery rhymes and fairy stories. She went on reading them long beyond childhood. She was almost 30 when she made her first Br'er Rabbit illustration and 45 when she worried about Mr Todd. No evidence suggests a Zobel Marshall hazards that she encountered Chandler Harris's stories through her grandfather's connections to cotton growing with its links to slavery. Nor will the average reader accept Zobel Marshall's claim that a storyline involving food theft, like Peter Rabbit's escapades, must be directly linked to the need for enslaved people to steal food from their masters to survive. Across the British countryside, boys and girls have stolen fruit from orchards since time immemorial. Presumably, rabbits, who do not always share British views on property rights, are even more culpable in this area. Writer's work is, and must be, susceptible to scrutiny, evaluation, interpretation. The quality and enduring popularity of Potter's work keeps her in modern sightlines. Does she deserve castigation for cultural appropriation? The answer is the same as it must be for any artist or storyteller. Not when that criticism has any foundation in supposition. That was Matthew Dennison. And that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed these articles, why don't you pick up a copy of the magazine? I'm Natasha Faroz and do join us again next week. <laughs>